Oh no, the music. I forgot the music. We're live and I forgot the music. Oh no. Oh no, what a mess. We're five minutes late, 10 minutes late. Yeah, so I'm just going to turn it off. This was a terrible disaster. All right. Hello. <laughs> Welcome in, everybody. Let, make, make sure you can hear us okay. Make sure you can see us okay. A lot to talk about today on this Friday edition of our community forum. Thank you very much. Um, uh, yeah, Farzad's usually on time, maybe having some issues. I'm just I'm just a mess today. That's really what it came down to. But I appreciate you guys uh, for for waiting. Um, yeah, uh, real quick, if you guys don't mind on the panel, we'll, we'll, we'll start doing this as well because we are gaining a larger audience. Uh, we'll go around the clock, just a brief introduction, and then uh, we'll start with TeslaBot today. TeslaBot, tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> I'm also known as Borghand. I'm an attorney, and as long as I get oil and screwed, I'm fine. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Hans, go for it. I'm not sure that I want to follow that one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my name is Hans Nelson. I am a mechanical engineer. I've been a, a Tesla investor since I think 2017, uh, 2017, 2018, somewhere back in there. Um, I've been following Elon Musk um, since I read Tim Urban's Wait But Why series and uh, just really deep down the rabbit hole by this time, uh, pretty much everything between Neuralink, Boring Company, Tesla, SpaceX, and now Twitter. Um, yeah, love researching and then discussing. Awesome. Jared, go for it. Yeah, I'll just reiterate everything Hans said, basically. Um, and then I worked at Tesla in 16 and 17, um, part-time when I was in college. Woo, woo, woo. Nice. Tesla crew. Um, Farzad and I'm a running back for Penn State. Okay, so uh, let's kick off with some <laughs> notes. For those that don't know, Penn State, every time they play on the weekend, I got to wear the uh, jersey of whatever, if they're away or home, so that they win. And last time it didn't work, so I'm going to keep doing it anyway. Uh, all right, so let's kick off with the Ron Barron, uh, Elon Musk chat that just happened. This is kind of like, quote unquote, breaking news, if you want to call it. Uh, I don't I don't think anyone on the panel has had a chance to watch it yet because it was kind of last minute. But I, I did catch most of it. And I wanted to lead off with the notes, use those notes as a way to sort of kick off our conversation. A lot of the sort of topics overlapped. And in the comments section as well, as we go through the conversation, please drop your um, your comments uh, about what you think. Maybe ask some questions and I'll try my best to monitor the the chat just like I am now. Farzad, where are the women? I agree. If We got to get some women on this panel. We need more diversity here. So I appreciate you, Mimi. Maybe one of these days we'll have you on. Who knows? Join Patreon. All right. Uh, here, are, here are the notes. What's up? You got to send the invite to Mary Bar. <laughs> Say that one more time. Send the invite to Mary. Yeah, I should. Mary Barra. Yeah. Mary, if you have the guts, we would love to have you on. Mm -hmm. All right. So here are the notes, my high-level notes from the Ron Barron discussion, and then uh, we'll take it from there. Uh, I came in at the SpaceX sort of, I, I, I couldn't tell if they were in the middle or towards the end, but uh, Baron was asking about how anyone can compete with SpaceX and how competitors can still get funded. And really, Elon led off with saying, you know, this is just a vertical integration problem. We have to be really good at ensuring that the you have to be perfect in building these rockets to make sure reusability is possible. And your reusability is by far the most important thing. And then he sort of dropped the nugget and said, well, I have to be careful what I say because I've already made so many enemies, you know. And then something else he said was that, um, I want, I wish less companies wanted me to die. Something along those points, kind of in a gesturing manner, but it was kind of, I think, in his, 
in, in the front of his mind, especially with the Twitter stuff that's going on. So it, that was fascinating. Uh, he made a statement that Twitter will uh, aim to be the largest financial institution, the, the, the most valuable financial institution in the world. Twitter Blue will aim to be sort of a, a, a method where the $8 a month acts as a way to make crime very expensive. So the thought process is if, uh, if you're a Twitter Blue person, your replies come to the top, you know, and then everybody else kind of flows through from, from there. Uh, Blue will be prioritized. And the other sort of analogy he uses, if you're uh, somebody who has a bot farm right now, it's incredibly, it's basically free to create bots. You know, you can get a algorithm to spit out a, a million bots and it doesn't cost you a thing. If you make uh, Twitter eight bucks a month to sign up, all of a sudden, if you want an account that's going to get most of the attention because of how it's going to be prioritized, then you have to pay $8 a month per account. So it's kind of making crime very, very expensive. That's sort of the reasoning that was given. I'm not saying I agree or disagree, just kind of painting the picture of what was said. Um, so it's in another sense, it's try to purify the service in, in that sense. Uh, activist groups try to hijack Twitter, uh, losing a lot of revenue, feels that it's messed up and an attack on the First Amendment. So this was sort of a, a conversation around how when he took over the company, a lot of these advertisers have been sort of uh, reserving uh, their ability to advertise on the platform because uh, apparently activist groups are out there persuading these companies that they shouldn't advertise on Twitter. And I guess they haven't. And Elon feels like that's very messed up. He actually shared a tweet on this not too long ago, if I'm not mistaken. Let me pull it up on our screen real quick so that we can go through that. Um, just because it's on topic. Here we go. Present, share screen. Here we go. Uh, Twitter has had a massive drop in revenue due to activist groups pressuring advertisers, even though nothing has changed with content moderation. And we did everything we could to appease the activists. Extremely messed up. They're trying to destroy free speech in America. Pretty strong words, if I, if I say so myself. But it was discussed on that Ron Barron panel. Uh, is, he's currently working 120 hours a week, 110 to 120 hours a week. Uh, he feels like it's needed because, you know, that's just the state of business. Got to get Twitter up and running. However, he does think over time, Twitter will be easier to manage than Tesla or SpaceX. And he's working on putting together a group here in the next, call it, um, few weeks to take over the uh, the company. But until then, he think, he said that it's necessary. You, we, you know, if, if you follow Elon for a long time, he feels like, he doesn't care about pain. He just does what he thinks needs to be done. Uh, you know, screw his health, I guess, is how he thinks. So uh, quite wild. Uh, on the topic of Tesla, Tesla got too big for logistics. That's why Q3 got some criticism. Uh, however, he thinks long term, this is good because you do want some deliveries in the pipeline. So you're not rushing to finish out quarters. We already kind of know this. And then there was a Q&A session at the end, only two questions. But this sort of like was a big takeaway for me. The first uh, person asked, uh, he framed the question this way, Mercedes is making EVs today, and it's trading at six times earnings, Tesla is trading at 70 times earnings, why should I invest in Tesla? And then what in my head went to is like, okay, so Elon's having this conference talking to a bunch of potential investors, you know, part of the Baron group, uh, a lot of folks that have a lot of money. And um, 
some of the, like the statements he would make, people were like, yeah, yeah, clap, 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 clap. And I'm like, okay, this is stuff he's been saying for like God knows how long. So what, what opened my eyes again is that it still feels like this thing is very early and most people still don't understand what the hell is going on with this company. And then so when that question came up, he uh, started talking about full self-driving and how that's going to be five times more valuable if you have a car and if you do a long-term sort of analysis on um, future cash flows and you think about the optimist, essentially the, it boggles the mind is sort of the things he keeps dropping. And uh, it was just interesting sort of listening to the crowd react to that. So there are some notes. Um, I'll, so whoever wants to go first, start sort of uh, maybe dumping your brain on us and then we can sort of go around the horn like we usually do. But who would like to uh, who, who go first, either on these topics or whatever sort of sprung up in your mind? Um, go for it. I'll open the, uh, the panel. Don't be shy. I won't, I won't be bashful. Um, um, obviously, my father's health is very important, and I'm concerned that Elon take care of himself. And that is a great concern, because that's a key man. That's the ultimate key man concern that we always hear about Tesla. And um, there was discussion about Twitter not basically taking uh, Elon's attention. And obviously, it is. So the and i try to be I, I might be a little bit more critical because of my background so i'm generally kind of like looking at the the flip side of most things so the other thing is in terms of it's a free country right it's a private company an activist group if they don't want to use twitter i mean that's kind of the flip side the whole point of twitter is it's free and people are free to make whatever decisions they want. That includes boycotting Twitter. And it's um, and I and I think the fact that he didn't anticipate the fact that he was going to get pushback and negative um, uh, negative uh, you know influence by outsiders is short sighted. And um, one concern I always have about Elon is I find him to be impulsive and he acts often, it appears to me, because he wants to do something without maybe reflecting upon all the ramifications. And if he didn't expect that if he acquired Twitter, he was going to get pushback, then, that, then he really did not uh, think the transaction through. Ultimately, whether it's a, a, a the other part was he has to distinguish between free speech and the business. He's claiming that uh, the active, activist groups are impinging on free speech. They're just impinging on the business. He can run Twitter the, however he wants. He can make it much more open. And that has nothing to do with free speech. That just has, has to do with the business. And it, obviously, it's a questionable business deal at this point in time. I understand that. And if advertiser advertisers are leaving, it makes it a worse business deal. But I think his uh, mindset is divided and, and probably looking at, at business as opposed to the First Amendment. I also think that, um, I, and I always thought one way I thought Twitter was lacking is there should be a disclaimer. When you open the site, it should basically say something to the effect, these are people's view they may be full of shit. This may not be accurate. So take it as as such and do your own, basically do your own due diligence. 
And I never seen any kind of uh, suggestion. And I think if that was like prominent, if you didn't give everything 100% credence and you really put it the onus on people to do their own work, that would make Twitter more effective. So those are kind so of So you're my... saying that Tom Nash should write the disclaimer for Twitter. Might be inaccurate. <laughs> Might be the rabblings of a madman. <laughs> or his old grandfather. His grandfather maybe should write it. Yeah. So my thoughts on the advertising portion, um, and especially like what's going on with advertisers pulling support for Twitter is think about a the quality of the return on ad spend that Twitter has and how garbage it is. And so who are the companies who are going to throw money at that? Well, it's obviously going to be big companies with large ad spend that they really don't care what their return on ad spend is. They're just like spreading around big amounts of advertising dollars and mostly trying to get some brand awareness. And they're like, sure, like we might as well spend some at Twitter. And thinking about GM specifically, the you just gotta wonder like how much politics and that ad spend are intertwined together because this is a company that has basically captured the Democratic Party. Their unions control what the White House does to a large degree, and we've seen that. Um, and so if they feel like their political views are not going to have the same amount of freedom and control on the platform that they used to have, and oh, we also control the advertising dollars that go into that platform. I'm not surprised, like Borkan mentioned, that this is um, this was pretty foreseeable, um, just based on the demographics of who the advertisers are going to be. And yeah, not surprised at all. That said, I think this is a short-term problem, and that the quality of the product as it improves. Uh, you know, there's just so many low-hanging fruit here, and he's already started to, you know, identify a lot of things. I love watching Elon go out on Twitter and gather feedback and get suggestions and start making plans for how they're going to improve the platform and the product. And, I, you know, I think all this will get sorted out. Um, but, yeah, it definitely was was foreseeable. Yeah, and the one thing I was taking away, you know, the best thing in this was kind of how he was saying that his involvement and stuff like that with Twitter will gradually decrease. Um, and, you know, building Twitter, how it will ideally like live in the future, it, it, he's building a system. And once you build the system correctly, it'll self-innovate with the creatives that are on the space, as well as it'll take less involvement from him and his team. Um, and, you know, I mean, the one thing is like everyone will react and say, oh, he's doing a lot more work than expected. You got to think, though, where he is coming into Twitter versus where he's been coming into a lot of other situations. He had a team, he had a plan. This was months of litigation leading up to it. It's always been in the back of his mind and all of his immediate team around him that he's going to be taking over possibly someday. And this is how we're going to improve it. Um, so, you know, it, it's like, what else did you expect? <laughs> yeah, I do think what what's starting to fascinate me a lot is a lot of the 
conversations around Elon taking over Twitter and how this is going to become another attack vector towards sort of his what he's been accomplishing and the different things that are like happening in, in his realm. Uh, I don't know if you guys agree with this, but I feel like the attention that he's been getting in the media and everywhere else seems like it's at, the, at, at an all time high uh, to me. And I think we sort of like we said, we expected it. It was part of the part of the plan. But it's at the same time, I've sort of been scouring different uh, media companies. You know, I'm going checking out Fox, CNN, MSNBC, Breaking Points, you know, different blogs and whatever else. And, and I like to think of myself as very nonpartisan. I hope I'm just an ideas person. I like to just approach everything holistically. I'm going to try my best to not be biased into something. But it does appear like for the last week, this dude has been zeitgeist. Like it's just everything... Maybe maybe it's just my bubble, <laughs> but outside of Russia, Ukraine and what's going on there, it's like Elon Twitter, Elon freedom of speech, Elon uh, advertisers. And it's just so interesting to watch. It's kind of like the, you know, he's dominated the tech space and sort of the electric vehicle space and the technology space for so long. And now he's sort of filtering into pop culture now. It, it's becoming this transition where he's going from that to this now and it's i'm trying to see how this is going to play out in the next say two to four weeks or maybe even longer to see what kind of uh, dynamics appear and within the realm of the advertising revenue and everything that's going on there i do feel like if the blue check mark thing becomes a success come monday when it goes live supposedly uh it it, it kind of creates this uh, area where a lot of the great content actually starts appearing to the top and going to the top. I wonder if that's going to really change the, some of the narratives that we're hearing. And then if uh, advertisers are like, well, okay, so this was successful and you were able to create a platform that's going to be super valuable for for what really matters, if that's just going to change the equation and then advertisers go on, they start spending their ad dollars, they start making a ton of money because their products are actually selling and then the word gets spread around. And then before you know it, Twitter is the place where advertisers want to go. Right. So um, that's kind of what pops up to my head as I think through this whole thing. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing just to you, you were touching on this, but one thing to draw out a little bit more is with SpaceX and Tesla specifically, you know, his exposure to both the broader public and politics was a lot lower that, you know, there's a lot of politics that were involved in SpaceX, but Gwen pretty much handled that part of it. Like that happened in spite of Elon's political unsavviness, not because of it. Um, and that really is thanks to Gwen. And then with Tesla, you know, pretty minimal. And then, so there's like an isolated audience at first early on when the resistance to those products was super high. It's still a very small group of people. And now that he's delving into the realm of social media, like it's a much larger, broader audience. It is more worldwide. It's going to have a lot more attention. And it the power structures that SpaceX and Tesla we're coming up against were largely behind the scenes power structures you know americans aren't going about their daily lives thinking about mm. lockheed martin ula mm. um those types of things and there so there are strong existing power structures that he was fighting against but they were background and then 
now he's wading right into the foreground you know with tesla energy companies oil companies like these are also very powerful entities but they're not front of mind for the average person the average person is really thinking about social media um now whether Twitter is the thing that the average person is really talking about, but as far as in the internet world, Twitter is the zeitgeist. And so he is now at the center of, you know, the most controversial thing. And so, yeah, that's, that, it's also inevitable that this thing, it, it's progressing through a similar arc of pushback by a power center against uh, an upstart and disruption. Um, and so it's going through a similar cycle, but this is now a public front and center cycle as opposed to past ones where they were a little bit more in the periphery. That's a fascinating point. Like, like the dude can't help but disrupt shit. <laughs> that's really what it comes down to. Like he can't help it. I think that's that's just who he is. He just doesn't necessarily, I don't know if he doesn't care but he just feels like that disruption itself is more important than how people will feel about it. If you love humanity and you want the future for humanity to be better than the day that we have today, then the status quo is unacceptable. Yeah. And the thing is that how did we get to the status quo? Well, a lot of people worked really hard to make the world as good as it is today. And now they want to enjoy the benefits of having work to make it as good as it is today. And we have this professional administrative class who their job is to preserve the status quo. And he says, no, that's not good enough. We need a better future. And so how do you do that? Well, you have to disrupt the professional administrative mm. class. And it's almost like the the percentage we've always had progress as a society sorry tesla bot i'll let you go here in a second we, we've we've had um by the way the, the comments on your getup is amazing <laughs> i'm just seeing a lot of uh, action there it's funny to what to follow uh shout out everybody uh in the stream by the way 516 uh, folks thank you very much oh, love you guys the um fuck, i forgot the point i was gonna make shit go ahead tesla bot sorry yeah, so I think it's also the, it, his, the response of the population is also based on the macro. So, you know, we, the last three years, the, you know, honestly, the last three years have been a shit show. And now the stock market is taking a dump. We're either in a recession or going into a recession. So people always look for a villain. They have to have, there has to be somebody responsible for the plight of the world. And, and he is open and out front so and that's his personality and he has no concerns about being that but that makes him like the target that's that's kind of the what and he, on top of that you add the fact that there's a huge mistrust of wealth in this country so if you're super wealthy most of the people think you're a scumbag you're you stole your money something but it's a negative whatever the conclusion is it's a negative so he kind of fits all those all those kind of classes. If Tesla stock was at 500 today, he'd probably get less pushback. You know, be a lot more happy people. He'd be able to, you know, it would on its face, it would kind of substantiate his brilliance. When it's half that value, people are even more attacking of his uh, character, et cetera, unfortunately. Yeah.
Go, yeah, I mean, Tesla's very legit nowadays too. We can't forget that. Is like, you know, if something like were like like this were to happen, you know, maybe five years ago, back then Elon would say like Tesla might fail and I might lose all my money. He would often say that. And um, you know, now it's like okay, we have this billionaire and he's solidified as a billionaire. Whether Tesla fails, SpaceX fails, like he would take a lot for him to be a poor man these days. So his influence on the world is only going to keep getting bigger for the short term. Um, so I think that's also what keeps him, you know, front front page on media these days yeah i was uh i remember what i was going to say the 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 thing that's fascinating to watch is hu human beings have always had progress it seems like from the beginning of time we've always progressed but what percentage of the population was actually disrupting to be able to make those advancements because you can't advance unless you disrupt right so the percentage of the population that's being disrupted up through you know call it the sort of last 10 years of this Elon Musk figure coming in and disrupting some stuff much bigger than than folks before him, one could argue, is uh, maybe one percent of the population was disrupting. Maybe half a percent of the population was disrupting. It's almost like we're we're increasing the percentage of the, of the population that's either disrupting or being disrupted, and that in itself is what's I feel like causing a lot of this sort of weird time that we're in right now. Because there's clearly somebody who's trying to push stuff forward in a in trying to maximize the number of people that he feels like would benefit from pushing stuff forward and that has to be to me in my head the underpinning as to why so many people sort of to to uh Borghan's point why so many people are upset it's because the the percentage of folks that are being disrupted and the percentage of folks that are disrupting has increased from previous times and um it's just it's so it's so weird it's such a weird time i don't know i honestly don't know if it's the percentage of people disrupting definitely the percentage of people being disrupted i think it's more the power and speed with which the disruption is occurring um enabled by technology like you know listening to james and um dave talk about tesla bot the other day and you know just thinking more and more about tesla bot and where that's going and just how fast the field of ai is progressing like you know it it's pretty hard to extrapolate out very far and feel like you have a good understanding of where this is going to go um because the things that we expect to happen a like everyone expected ai to disrupt like accountants and doctors and things before artists like art was supposed to be the hard thing that was mm. the human thing that ai was never going to be able to touch well all of a sudden we've got all this technology and stable diffusion and dolly and um all the things that we're seeing that's like that was not supposed to be what ai was supposed to be effective at and so it's like the exact trajectory of where AI is going is hard to pin down. And then also the speed with which it's just like to go from ImageNet in 2012 to where we're at today in 2022 is insane. And that's just like the very, the early base of an exponential curve that's about to go insane. Um, and so, yeah, like, that disruption or the way that that fuels disruption and the thing the amount of things that can be disrupted and the magnitude to which they can be disrupted 
Um, like we've just never seen anything like this in human history. And yeah, but, but it's not, it doesn't seem like it's disruption for disruption's sake though. And I think that's the separation here, right? It's like, so in, in the example of, of SpaceX, everything's getting heavily disrupted because they, there's now a solution that's making space travel orders of magnitude cheaper. The cars getting disrupted because now you have a vehicle that amassed this sort of <laughs> rabid fan base, ourselves included, I would say, that are inspired by what that product means and what the future means. It's it's an improvement. It's it's an improvement to that. So I think what's interesting to think about is as that disruption continues, how will Elon and his teams continue the trend of absolute disruption for the for the improvement of sort of call it mankind in in some way and how can they maximize the number of people that feel the positive results of that disruption because the, the key thing about disruption is that it's super uncomfortable and it's hard it's hard to live through i mean look at today my god what, what's the byproduct of twitter's uh disruption half the staff got laid off that sucks like from a human perspective, that's that's shit. Like that's that's thirty seven hundred people that maybe wanted to be that, regardless of their political belief or where they come from. That's thirty seven hundred people that's that in a way have suffered emotionally, financially, in some way. Maybe some of them are happy that they were let go. Who cares? But it was it, it, there was some sort of byproduct from that disruption. But if say in the next five years, Twitter is able to turn into this thing that's actually positively benefiting people or positively benefiting humanity in the same way call it SpaceX and Tesla have done, then I'm curious to see if uh, more people will sort of shift their mindset from, ooh, bad billionaire, too much money, you know, he's out there just being greedy to, wow, okay, so I can see what he's trying to do. And I'm going to be more comfortable living through the uncomfortable sort of moment of disruption and so on and so forth. And maybe that's me just being too optimistic, but um, yeah, it's a fascinating sort of thing that I'm thinking through. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to just mention one thing about why he's targeted, um, and how it influences, we're talking about disruption. Um, I think he's, he's targeted partly just strictly on a financial basis by short sellers. So, and they do it to all stocks. And I happened to follow, I was following an Alzheimer's drug stock and it was, it was running a different kind of model than the other drug companies. And every so often you'd see like some report that would come out that would completely cripple the stock. And it was clear that the bigger pharmaceutical companies were either encouraging, paying for, or whatever. And it was a way of disrupting that company's ability to go forward. And I'm sure with Tesla, it's the same thing. I see news and the way I see it is I see news reports that I saw six months ago and it's redone on some new wire service. Like somebody's just kind of repeating the same, the same story. The company that I was following that, that had been targeted, what they did is yesterday they filed a lawsuit in federal court against all those shorts. It was like a thousand different entities but they followed against all those short sellers to kind of keep them in check, whether they're going to get anything or not, who knows, but it might be a method of kind of, you know, silencing them or suppressing them. But I really think that's an element. I, I'm, I would assume that legacy auto 
is not unhappy when they see negative stories about Elon. And would I be surprised if Mary Barra didn't have somebody on staff PR who was making sure that all those stories go out? I would not be surprised at all. Yeah, I, I do appreciate people, you know, at least pushing back on the short sellers and creating some friction. It kind of goes back to the, you know, bots being free. Like if the SEC doesn't do anything to curb short sellers doing coordinated attacks or individual companies or groups don't push back and make it at least more expensive for them, then we'll see that type of behavior get more out of hand. So yeah, I appreciate anyone who's like short selling is an important thing, but it also needs to be kept balanced and in check. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating to watch. I, I, there was a, there was a comment where, um, somebody said this is going to be a controversial statement, but um, I'm going to make it anyway. Somebody said that, you know, Elon has to kind of stay away from politics and so on and so forth. I just, I, I find that sort of viewpoint with all respect, with all due respect, sort of, um, weird. Because if no one talks about politics, then politics will destroy nations, <laughs> states, in my opinion, because that's just what happens. You know, if, if you allow the few to have the conversations to dominate society, then over time, the few will just do what benefits them. And that's just human nature, like literally follow anything you've ever been a part of where a group of people have sat down to do things. If they go unchecked, like literally every corporation in the history of mankind, what happens in the long term, it just exists to make investors money. That's all it does, because that's what humans do. And so if you don't have a population that's willing to question and fight against what's the, what the power is doing, then the end game is obvious, right? So I don't buy this. And, and I get it, it's not good for Tesla stock. It increases risk. I get it. But I just wish more people were comfortable talking about politics, honestly, because I think in the end, that's what really helps societies grow. Is if all of us had a conversation about what what's going on truly, then I think we'll be better off. Anyway, off my soapbox. Sorry, it just sort of triggered a, a thing in my mind. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no doubt that Elon is this polarizing figure, and obviously, it's easy to make the analogies with um, President Trump of him being this very polarizing figure. Um, but the other thing that happened this week was obviously the AOC banter and the, the, the beef between them on Twitter, which it's very What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> that was, this is definitely one of the top, you know, weeks on Twitter for Elon. Um, but, but going into politics, it was kind of interesting, um, because, you know, no matter what side you're on, I think I saw some interesting dialogue happening in the replies because obviously Elon and his fan base is coming from one side, AOC and her fan base is coming from one side, excuse me. Um, but there was a lot of commentary going on about unionized workers and stuff in their reply. So, you know, obviously we're living in the old regime of Twitter. Um, but I think there's a foundation of people who are there that are interested in talking about different points and stuff like that. So, you know, yeah. plays a big role in the future of Twitter. It's, you were, we're disrupting how people talk to each other. You know what I'm saying? Like this is the uncomfortable nature of politics in itself. Like is it's being disrupted. Why can't we all talk about politics? Why can't we sit down and have a conversation about how we should be doing stuff? This is what's getting disrupted. This is what I'm talking about. Like, this sucks. It's uncomfortable, well, we, but you have to do it. We definitely haven't figured out how <laughs> to do that online in social media. Like, that's right. the thing. This is never, we used to be able to do this more as a country um, and then as a society, but it happened face to face 
it happened in different forms. And, you know, it also kind of happened a lot in specific places where that was the focus. Um, so hopefully we can, we can figure out how to do that. And I think that's one of Elon's goals in when he's saying preserving free speech, the reason that free speech is important is it is a mechanism to surface the highest signal information in a huge amount of noise. Um, and it's very uncomfortable. And so, you know, to maybe support the, the commenter earlier who was talking about that, I felt the same way about so many celebrities. It's like, just act in the shows, act in the movies, and then I'll enjoy them. But then when you get up here and you start talking about politics, I'm like, shut up. I don't like, you're not qualified to speak on these topics. You have no idea what you're talking about and you're so out of touch with reality. I don't really want to hear what you have to say. Um, and so that was because they're voicing political opinions that were more opposed to the things that I believed. And Maybe it's actually valuable for me to listen to those things. Now, on the flip side, okay, that's what these people are experiencing is someone like, I would highly doubt that whoever it is that wants Elon to shut up has that same thought when they hear speeches at the Grammys or, you know, the Emmy Awards or whatever that are very, very political. Um, and so then that becomes a mechanism. Maybe I should do some reflection. Why do I want Elon to shut up? And I don't care when other people talk politically. Oh, that's because I am actually sensitive to political conversation that challenges the things that I believe. And maybe if I actually want to grow and be a mature, robust person and have beliefs that I actually have conviction in, I need to be exposed to some of those things that I don't necessarily agree with. Um, and that's just, you know, something that a lot of people haven't had to do. And the way that our social media landscape is set up is really fight like the way that the social media algorithms, they just want to feed you what you want to watch and what you want to watch is what you already agree with. Um, it creates these little bubbles and echo chambers and we're all susceptible to it. Um, so this, it's not necessarily that this is, a weakness on individuals part that is um, intentional. It's kind of a structural thing that maybe we need to be more intentional now to fight against that and expose ourselves to things that we don't agree with. Um, and hopefully with the direction that Elon takes Twitter, people will be exposed to that a little bit more and we'll at least get a swath of the population who really is interested in finding out the truth and those people are going to be able to come together in a sort of online town square where they can do that together in a diverse landscape of ideas that really challenges them. Mm -hmm. What I was going to say is that this is nothing new. I mean, I've always heard the statement, don't discuss religion and politics, right? That's if you if you go to like a dinner, you don't know somebody don't raise religion and politics. So it's not new. What I what I think is different is there's a certain intimacy, just even in our conversation here. We see each other. We're speaking to each other. I it's can't more, see you, bro. <laughs> it's much I'm sorry, more, I see the butt. 
No, no problem. It's much harder to call you a scumbag when I'm talking to you like this than when I just see like a, you know a, a, a line of, of words and I don't have a direct interaction with you. And that's something that definitely you know has changed over the past 30 years. There was there was nothing like that that existed. If if we all had to kind of have an intimate discussion, it would probably be more civil. And I think the lack of intimacy has caused in in a way a lack of civility. A hundred percent. There was a I was listening to a um, Joe Rogan podcast with Dr. Phil of all, all people. I've never seen a Dr. Phil show, but there was a uh, interesting sort of a experiment that was done where they took two people and they sat them down in a room with very opposing ideas and they uh essentially said okay like you could t like from the story it sounded like these two had a lot of like aggression towards each other because of what they stood for you know and these are the folks that would go online and sort of you know uh uh speak their mind on that but being very aggressive towards the other side they sat them down in a room and they forced them to look each other in the eyes for 10 minutes and not say a word just look each other in the eyes just look each other in the eyes for 10 minutes. And then after the experiment was done was, okay, so how do you feel? And then both people said, I did not realize there's a human being on the other side, right? So that's that goes directly to the point you just stated. So then my brain goes to how, like, could Twitter be the place where the humanity is shown first so that we can actually sit down and have a conversation? Because clearly human beings... We suck at this online thing, but it seems like when you when you introduce the humanity aspect of it, the the guards come down. You you see similarities on the other side. You're like, wow, this is another person. They have they have love. They have hate. They have they have sadness. They have sorrow. They have happiness. They have lust. They have passion. Right? How is that even possible to do, or is that am I thinking too far in advance? And do we not even need to do that in order to create sort of good discourse? You know, because it seems like that's that's what's missing. That's what's missing. It's the whole elevator thing. You go into an elevator when you're driving a car around, and some idiot, you know, I'm already calling that person an idiot. If some idiot almost makes you crash, you're like, you know, that son of a bitch. I hope you know he gets into an accident, and then you're next to the elevator, to, next to the same person. You'd be like, hey, how you doing? You smell good, you know. It's weird. It's so weird. It's so weird. I think that speaks to the importance of the verification oh. system and actually getting that right. Because it's easy to hide behind a username. Um, but once, once you know you're actually speaking to a person on Twitter, you mm. know, the dialogue. Interesting. Didn't even think about that. So that blue check mark could very much like verify, hey, you're, that's another person you're talking to here, bro. Like they're verified, but well, I don't know. But then over time, if everybody has a blue jack mark, it just becomes like like their profile picture, <laughs> you know. Well, it does sound like he's going to be introducing some friction into misbehaving with the blue check mark, and so it will create a little bit of a different ecosystem of people who have the check mark interacting with each other, because there will be a higher level of expectations for the way that they're going to engage in the platform. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's shift, shift topics to something more uh, cheerful. Let's look at Tesla stock. <laughs> Pew, down four percent. See, I told you it was going to be more cheerful. Uh, what are you guys thinking? What do you guys think uh, made this happen? I have a theory. Mr. Powell, maybe Mr. Jerome. He was so negative in the, you know basically this the seventy five point uh, seventy five basis point raise was expected. And, and I often don't listen to Powell's uh, news conference, but I did. 
and I was shocked how ever, at every point he tried to indicate that we're not near the end of raising rates, and he's certainly not going to be premature at reducing rates. And I thought he was unbelievably hawkish. And I think the market turned on that. It's funny because he was less hawkish than I than he's usually been. I thought. Uh, I think I think the the conversation was kind of par for the course. Jared, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say when you look at the Nasdaq, though, it's really Tesla that's getting hit hard today, and I bet it's just people digesting the interview this afternoon, this morning. Mm-hmm. Hans, what do you? I think? think it's the Twitter overhang is beginning now. Ah, oh, so it's starting. It's it's not being lifted. It's beginning. It's accelerating. Yeah, the more for lack of a better word, the more bullshit Elon gets into with Twitter, I think the more that's going to impact Tesla stock, at least for a little while. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest headline for me was the 120 hours a week and knowing that he's going to be that depleted with his mental energy and mental space to work on Tesla and stuff like that. As a, sh- as a short-term investor, you just would not want to hang on to the stock in the immediate term knowing that that's where he's going to be devoted. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think the 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 crowd that was saying, well, this is clearly going to be a distraction for Elon uh, can sort of use the that exact thing to make the stock move in the way that they think it should move, you know. Um, but I think some of the points that were made around this is it was clear the verbiage at the meeting, I thought at least I thought was that it was going to be temporary over time. Twitter is going to be easier to operate than SpaceX and Tesla. There's going to be a leadership group put in place at Twitter. That's probably Jason Calcanis sounds like is going to be the or was it Jason or was it somebody else? I forget. But he's got a group uh, that he's going to put in power, right? That is going to move Twitter forward. And then in the long term, it should be better. But I mean, I think this kind of gives a little bit of uh, uh, credence, I guess, to the fact that in the short term, at least, at least Twitter is very much influencing what's going on in the market. If I compare it to the NASDAQ, NASDAQ is down uh, 1.7%, which is not, which is quite significant. It was up 1.3. It's now down 1.1. Tesla was up 3.4 and is now down 4.7. And so that's a seven point swing. And it does sort of correlate with when, um, so the speech finished right around this time, 1045. And then since then, we've had a pretty severe sell-off. So yeah, interesting to watch. It definitely interesting to watch. Uh, what other topics? Oh, go ahead, Hans. Sorry. Well, yeah, I just think it's important for long-term Tesla investors to level set their expectations. And I know a lot of people have crapped all over Chicken Genius um, Ken for his $140 potential price target for Tesla. And I don't know that it'll get that low, but Right now, it would take an incredible amount of positive catalyst to be able to break through the macro market. And right now, we just don't see, like, as far the macro market is in control, there are no positive catalysts coming in the near-term future for the macro. And so I would not expect, if I was holding Tesla stock, to see the price stabilize or increase from here anytime between now and maybe the beginning of 2023 um and like that's a you know i don't know that's gonna happen i could be wrong you know maybe some of the hedge funds and things who now that 
Tesla does have investment grade can come into the stock. Maybe they'll start coming in and raising, but you know, I think I wouldn't expect a um, stock buyback and I wouldn't expect meaningful buying from hedge funds that soon. There's it, it just doesn't look like a time where people are going to run out and spend money on Tesla. Um, and so, you know, you just have to bake that in that we could see another 20, 30, 40% drop potentially, even from current prices. And if you can't handle that, you need to make plans on how you need to best take care of your financial situation. Um, now, I think long-term, this stock has incredible potential. Um, and if you're approaching your investments from a Nassim Taleb barbell strategy where you want minimum downside risk and maximum upside exposure, you can create a great investment strategy around Tesla. Um, but you do have to understand and manage your downside exposure and your downside risk. And you have to be okay when some of those potential strategy or uh, outcomes come into play. And so, yeah, I would not be surprised to see Tesla significantly below 200 over the next three months. I was going to say, I was just going to say the price section today really speaks to our conversation. We just came from of Elon being this figure that, you know, the more he's in the headlines, the more institutional money is going to trade off of the day-to-day -day activity. So, I mean, volatility over the next three months, I think is just going to be insane as Twitter plays out. I was going to say is what I heard, I, I, you know, what, what, I don't know anything, but what I heard was kind of a lot of people saying that until Apple kind of crashes, we won't bottom. And Apple is starting, uh, you know, despite it's, it's uh, had good earnings, but now it's since it's kind of backed off substantially from after earnings. And once kind of the, at least what I heard, once Apple kind of hits bottom, then the market's kind of bottomed because Apple's going to be kind of the last one to go. And, uh, and the other side was kind of the thought process would be once, and I forgot the name of the agency, once the, the agency who calls when a recession occurs, once the agency calls a recession, we will be up from that point in time because the Fed will then have to kind of re-strategize and we'll be looking to kind of aid the economy. And um, kind of at least what else I heard in that regard is kind of we would bottom like six to nine months before a recession. We can't have a recession at least for another quarter plus because we have a we're going to have a positive GDP uh, this quarter. So we might be looking like six months till we actually really hit bottom. Um, but that's kind of pure guesswork. But we're obviously yeah. subject to the macro like everybody else. Yeah, I think looking at Apple's chart today of 2.86 down actually doesn't, um, if I compare this to Tesla real quick, so if I add a comparison and add Tesla in, I just want to see line size big. Let's make it red because Tesla's logo is red. Yeah, so let's do a one-day chart here real quick. Yeah, so it is, uh, Tesla was up significantly above Apple, and now it's significantly lower than Apple. But Apple still has had quite a drastic move down here, uh, down 2.75% for the day. So uh, it's it's interesting. Again, I, I get reminded just how much the market is pricing in future 
future likelihoods. And the market is just that. It's everyone's money where they think it's where they think the economy or that company is going to be in the next three to six months. That's all it is. And if the next three to six months changes and they perceive that it's going to be different, then it starts going up. And that's why when um, when uh, the stock market actually goes up through the bottom of a recession, because the market is is now voting with confidence that the future past that uh, recession or worse yet, depression will be positive. And that's how the market works. It's pricing in future sort of results. But it, it, the, the, the biggest difference is that how long people expect that to change, right? Folks that are in for three, five, not financial advice, three, five, 10 years in advance are going to vote very differently in the market versus somebody that's in six months. And that's how you have these ebbs and flows that go on in the markets. And that's why you have some companies outperforming others in the indices and so on and so forth. Um, we have a lot of really savvy investors that know this and understand this, but it's important to just hone in on the fact that those people with the short-term time horizons, they're the ones making the trades daily. They're the ones doing the buying and selling. Um, and so that's why the short term has such volatility is because the short, like today's stock price is determined by the people who care about the stock price today, not tomorrow, not six months down the road, not 10 months down the road. Um, and so the, you know, that's why Warren Buffett's saying that in the short term, the stock market is a voting machine in the long term, it's a weighing machine that over the long term, um, long-term investors have the power of, do we believe in the stock? And we're not selling it until it reaches, you know, these price targets. Um, that that works over the long period, but today, tomorrow, this month, next month, you know, that's much more in the hands of the people who are short-term volatility traders. Yeah. And I always find it fascinating how over like the long-term, I think, like buy it, buy it and forget it on companies that are clearly going to have a bright future or have a high likelihood of, of, a, of a bright future is such a tried and good strategy, but it's so damn hard to do because I think as a species, we are we tend to overexpose ourselves to the things that are likely to have a good outcome. And then when the short term is not reacting the way we thought, the long term, when the short term is not acting in the same way that we think the long term is going to act, then we start freaking out. And it's so it's a question of overexposure. And again, I am not a financial expert. I am not a financial advisor. But like for me as an investor, that's been by far the most the biggest lesson I've learned is that the reason why you would be sad or upset about a company going down in the long in the short term is because you're probably overexposed. You're probably overexposed. You probably have too much money in that thing. Um, yeah, and, and it's, I just wanted to throw that out there because like I've battled with that in the past. You know, like I've I've put too much in Tesla back in the day, and I was trying to do options and calls, and and uh, I was trying to you know, oh my god, it's going to go up like crazy. And then the, the couple of days it didn't, I got burned hardcore. I'm like, okay, this is I need to learn from something because I can't be doing this. You know, like this is crazy stuff. So, uh, no, and it's not how much hunts. money you have at risk as far as exposure. It's how much psychological. Yes. Value you have at risk. Like if you perceive this little bit of money as being super important and you better not lose any of it, then you will act, you know, you'll trade it 
in a way that is very subject to your emotions. If you don't have a whole lot of emotional energy tied up in the outcome of whatever this amount of assets is, then you can ride out that storm in the way that most people can't. Yeah. On the positive side, the, the optimistic side is the recession's already priced in. So, um, you know, even though we, we may go take a dump, the economy may take a dump, the stock market may go the opposite direction. And that's kind of like counterintuitive to all of us, but that would be, you know, very helpful. The other thing is I always think is it's a great experience to go through a terrible market because yeah. it's not going to be the only terrible market we're going to go through. And you kind of build up calluses. You see that you can make it to the other side, notwithstanding whatever the circumstances are. So it sucks going through it. But once you go through it, you know you could survive. I really, really loved the point. Um, oh, my gosh, I'm blanking on his name right now. But the the guest that Dave had on, who he retired on his Tesla stock. Um, Jason? Gosh, I follow him on Twitter. Yes, Jason DeBolt. Um, he's like, like, you Jason know, DeBolt. I own the same amount of production so he thinks about his stock in tesla in you know tesla has however many minutes there are in a year worth of production and jason says i own eight minutes per year of tesla production and it doesn't matter what the stock price is today or tomorrow i still own eight minutes of tesla production and if i'm thinking about what this company is going to do over the long term like in 2030, eight minutes of Tesla production is going to be way more valuable than eight minutes of Tesla production in 2022. And that's on track. That's unchanged. And if that's if my investment thesis is centered around what is the value of eight minutes worth of Tesla production in 2030, then I don't care if the stock price today is 150 or 450, because in 2030, it's still going to be way higher than that. Um, and so, yeah, I just loved that frame on what your stock is like. You don't have, you know, he, he disambiguated, you don't have cash and stock. Like you gave your cash to Tesla and now what you own is a share of the company. You are a, an owner of the company. Um, and so people think about it kind of in that weird muddled way of, you know, I have this much money of Tesla stock. No, you own X percent of a company. And yes, people are wildly speculating on the value of that company up and down in the short term. Um, but what you own actually didn't change. Yeah. I find it fascinating too. There's there's two things there for me. It's like the actually there's many things there, like especially the stuff that um our friendly Tesla bot shared is the the it sucks to be in a down market this is the first down market that i'm a part of since i started investing but it's not the first time that i've been part of a company that's been down so tesla has had insane roller coasters in the past however having an entire market that's dictating how a stock performs is a different experience for me and it's eye-opening because it's like okay it doesn't really matter how much better the company is getting if the market's like fuck you it you're fucked. <laughs> That's just what happens. Excuse my French. Sorry if there's any kids watching. It's just how the market works. Sorry. Um, but 
So that's a, that's an interesting takeaway for me. And the parallel that I take from that is okay. It's that whole uncomfortable nature of of learning. You're you're in a situation where you're learning from being part of these things, and there's so many brilliant lessons to take away from these things, and sort of like parallelize it to like this whole freedom of speech we were talking about, starting businesses. Like there's just so many like overlapping things between between things that have a very common sort of like lesson to be given and the uncomfortable nature of being part of a down market, I think has so much tremendous value um, and and sort of paints a picture on, on how to do things in the future as well. And then um, the other thing too that I wanted to, to highlight was when it comes to these down markets and we're talking about overexposure to Tesla stock, what's interesting to watch is when, when the sort of weak hand thing keeps being thrown around, around, it's shaking off the weak hands. It's shaking off the weak hands. The, the way I think about that, it's, it's the folks that have been overexposed to the story are uncomfortable with the short-term price movements, and then they are correctly exposing themselves to the future of the company. And that might mean selling 50%. That might mean selling 100%. But that's why the stock's going down because more people are selling that they're buying. But it's that readjustment of overexposure. And the way I've tried to conceptualize that in my head is like, okay, so the market is correctly, Tesla stock specifically is correctly exposing itself or the comp the people that are invested in Tesla are correctly exposing themselves to the company for the long-term success. And that's why eventually you have a U-turn because now it's, it's properly exposed. And the folks that are in that company are not going to sell under any circumstances. Most of them are. And that's why you'll have more people buying than selling. And that's what causes the stock go to go up. So it's it's a fascinating dynamic to, for me. And the other thing that pops up to my head is like, okay, so what are the things that can't be done? Or are there tools out there that can help people maybe think through it through that lens to right size exposure to these things so that these crazy price movements aren't as psychologically impactful? Because I think in the short term, what ends up happening is if you're, if you're psychologically impacted by the price movements, you totally miss out on opportunities because you're in a negative mindset, not in a positive mindset. And then that has a sort of snowballing effect of negativity, right? So I, I don't know if there's any sort of advice we can give on that, but Hans, since you went off mute, maybe take it from there. Yeah. I mean, I think I'll take it back to Dave Lee again. He talks about basically compartmentalizing your risk. And I think that's one of the things that is such a great piece of advice in a bear market specifically that if you have stable income and you have your retirement investment kind of separated out from so you you can feel secure like i'm taken care of my family's needs are taken care of even my future is reasonably well taken care of and then over here this is a different bucket that doesn't impact any of that stuff. It doesn't impact my family's ability to eat. It doesn't impact my the roof over my head. And it doesn't impact the fact that, you know, I can afford to maintain my standard of living into my old age. Okay, I can take massive amounts of risk with what's left over after that. And it doesn't matter. Psychologically, I can be detached from that volatility and the impact of it you know if it's whatever that is for you if it's one percent of your life savings if it's two percent if it's five percent and you are exposing it to something that has asymmetric upside um 
then you can, and the price of having exposure to asymmetric upside is volatility. It's going to go up and down. And so if you can compartmentalize that bucket and you're not worried about the fact that it's going to go up and down and you are giving yourself exposure to that asymmetric upside, that is the thing that can carry you through a bear market because like you're saying, Farzad, if you're overexposed and you know the way that you're overexposed is, hey, if this thing fails and I can't make my mortgage payment, that's a problem, especially, and there are lots of things that can, you know, if I lose my job, you know, do I have savings in the bank? Um, can I maintain, if, if I had to make a change in my living situation, can I do that? Um, Elon has talked about this in the past. Hey, if I have to go back to couch surfing and eating ramen noodles, I can do that right. even as you know he's at zero risk of that at this point in his career but he was able to even make that level of risk in 2008 with hundreds of millions of dollars on the line um and so he just doesn't necessarily need that level of material things so that means his ability to separate out the psychological risk is greater than most of us. And so, you know, that's one way that you can do this for yourself is say, how do I just cut out all the stuff that doesn't add value to my life? And okay, now everything that's left over after like this tiny amount of needs, great. And we've seen people who've made huge bets in that way be incredibly successful, but you know, sometimes they're not successful. And sometimes they do have to just go back and live on whatever that minimum subsistence thing is. Um, it's, you just have to know that for yourself. What do I need to live? Make sure that's taken care of first. If you need to focus on increasing your earnings potential, get a bigger shovel, like, uh, Dave Ramsey would say, so that you can still have some leftover, do that. Um, cause when a bear market comes, it will expose how much you, how much exposure you have that you didn't realize. Yeah. That was honestly, great. Go ahead, Jared. Yeah, honestly, getting very existential, going very deep. Um, yeah, I mean, a couple things. So, you know, there's a big just change in risk appetite with the macro, and that's obviously affecting Tesla. Um, and the one thing I want to mention is, you know, for every seller, there is a buyer. So people are still picking it up at these lower prices and stuff like that. It's not like these super shares are just sitting out there kind of, um, to your analogy, Farzad. Um, the other thing is like, you know, with that risk appetite change going on right now, you need to think what's going on the next, you know, three or so months, you know, till the end of the year and into next year. And there isn't a lot, although we can be super optimistic about RoboTaxi Optimus and all these other things. Like there's not really anything that's going to hit top line or bottom line revenue for in the immediate future, even like six months out. Once you start seeing more deliveries of like Cybertruck in next year, now that, you know, tooling's done. Um, I mean, really it's just ramps right now and everybody can you know forecast out what these ramps are going to look like down the road but that's really it that's going to change in the short term yeah i was going to say it there, were, there may be a catalyst the catalyst might be january when we get fourth quarter deliveries and fourth quarter deliveries are good that would be probably a positive catalyst but i was going to say is you know in the short term if you have options or you're trading short term you have justification for being anxious and nervous if you're long term and you know, long-term five years or whatever out plus, then kind of the way I would look at it, and somebody mentioned this to me and I thought it was like a brilliant, you know, if you're really sold on something 
and you have the opportunity to get that, to go to a store and find something that you really want and buy it 50% off, you would be speeding to the store. And for some reason, even though we all love Tesla stock and we can get it cheap, we don't appreciate the gift that it's presenting to us at that time. And you know, hopefully you have money to buy, but ultimately if you love the stock, you love it more at 50% off. Yeah, that's very fair. And I think I think for the folks that um, aren't able to capitalize on that is like kind of a bummer. <laughs> like for example, for me, I have all my shares are 100% in Tesla. My income versus like my standard of living is like even, and I'm not willing to sacrifice my standard of living to buy more shares because I'm happy. I'm happy where I'm at, right? So for me, I'm like I'm just letting it ride. But if at some point I'm like, you know what, shit, I should really figure out how to get more, then I'm going to increase my shovel and I'm just going to get more. You know, I'll figure out how to increase my income. I'll, I'll do so in the best way that I can and I'll just buy more. Right. But I think that the overexposure aspect, like if I'm trying to put myself in the head of somebody that's maybe in a place where where they don't have that income or the income is sort of level, they have their Tesla stock, but they're depending on the Tesla stock to keep their standard of, of living. That's when it becomes uh, that's when you've sabotaged yourself because you're you're in mentally you're in it for the long term, but financially you're not because you're dependent on that on that uh, stock. And I have been like that in the past. And that's why I can say with confidence that's what happens because I've learned from that, you know. Um, so that's just another variable. It's like make sure that those things are are aligned, that you're not lying to yourself. Be very frank with yourself. Am I being honest? with how I'm investing. Because if you're not, then you're going to sabotage yourself. <laughs> you just are. And I've done that in the past. That's why I can say, you know, I can speak from experience, but I wasn't sure if somebody uh, came off me. There you go. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, is it just, you have to just be careful. Like there's a psychological concept. Don't let fear make a decision for you. Everybody's fearful. Everybody hates this, but don't let that be the decision making for you. Kind of fight through it and kind of make a rational decision. Yeah, and the one of the, the other way I like to think about it is like, you know, when you're investing, I, I like others who have said, you know, when you invest in Tesla, it's just like you put it away and you forget about it. You, know, you think about that five years from now. But what what dollar per contribution to the world, um, you know, what is that value you see in Tesla? Obviously, Apple has had this incredible contribution in the world of putting a smartphone in everyone's hand um, and creating a good, good user experience around that. I think what Tesla has done to get electric vehicles to market and you know, change the the mix in the market is incredible. But then look at what they're going to be doing down the road as well. And that's kind of where your investment is going to. So not, yeah. we all don't sound like greedy people <laughs> just trying to get an ROI. No, those are great points. Um, great. I hope that was helpful for everybody. I mean, I think we were just, uh, we just, uh, I, that was helpful for me too, to like reframe how I sort of think through my investment thesis and if there was advice i could give i could give but thank you all for being so open and honest about that um maybe to close it up we want to talk about andre karpathy's uh sort of talk with lex jared i know that's one thing you want to talk about go ahead and kick us off my friend oh that was so good it, uh, that, that whole podcast i mean three and a half hours it's long but it's worth every minute um it's really cool to see andre talk you know We've heard him at AI Day, but I don't know that I've seen, this might've been the first, you know, long length interview I've seen with him. Um, but I mean, my biggest takeaway was that just AI is so early um, with how he's talking about, you know, just centuries to go and the levels of AI. And I think it, it, it definitely played to the desires of every like inner nerd out there of like, what if there's glitches in, you know, life and reality and 
when AI can find glitches, I mean, it was just, it was every nerd's fantasy there. So that was pretty cool. Um, but it was really nice. You know, obviously the one big headline was that he would consider an act two at Tesla um, and hearing how far Tesla AI has come from those days of just having a couple of people coding at their desk, you know, to Dojo and where it is now. Um, so, I mean, like I said, worth every second and just incredible insight to hear a different perspective in Tesla AI. Mm -hmm. I tried listening to it and I'm like, uh, I'm about halfway through. I realize how dumb I am and how smart <laughs> he is. And, uh, um, and I, how positive I think he is on Tesla. That was kind of like the over overreaching thing. I was really impressed, favorably impressed. And, uh, how at ease he is with the subject matter. He, this, I mean, he's a super bright guy. So I was really impressed by whatever I understood. Yeah, I was impressed in a number of ways. One of the things was that just him talking about what he's grown the FSD team into that, you know, it started out two guys coding neural nets that were so small that they could run on desktop PCs that were running under literally under their desks all the way to a thousand plus person team. And, you know, he said the reason that he quit was he had elevated to a level where all of his day-to-day -day responsibilities were managerial responsibilities and he wasn't able to get down into the code and actually do anything like he was no longer working on AI uh, he was just working on managing a team and for a technical person, that is no fun. I like, I can relate. I was doing a management type role. Now I'm not nearly as technical or smart as <clears throat> Mr. Andre, but, um, it, man, it just wore on me. I, I hated dealing with all the people things like how do we motivate people? Oh, people are fighting this person has their feelings hurt oh now we've got this round of gossip that's going around and i doubt that those were some of the issues that he was dealing with um the tesla team is such a good team that that probably wasn't as much of what he was doing but still just all the overhead of management it gets old um and if you're not a people person that loves dealing with people problems then that's not something that's fun. So the fact that he was able to create such a large and effective team as someone who doesn't even enjoy doing that was super impressive. Um, and then also understandable why he wanted to back away and why he's willing to come back if he can come back in a capacity. Like there's not really a good road to transition from that high level management back into something that's technical that really works within like you kind of do need a clean break and then a clean restart if you're gonna do something like that um so that was cool and then i really um i really enjoyed the part where he talked about optimus like when elon said okay optimus is going to be a thing and then we got andre's perspective on the joe justice agile like okay this is a thing now people are just going to swarm it and like anyone who's interested in this problem can come and work on it and start making contributions and it will be this self-organizing thing inside of the company and you know maybe we're gonna create some actual metrics and measurement and organization within the digital self-management tools that we have to help direct that 
Um, and then, so that tied with Andre talking about Elon's um, ability to combat entropy in an organization. And I was kind of putting those two things together. I'm like, how much of combating entropy has to do with allowing this initiative to be a self-organizing initiative where the people who are the most passionate and the most not like you may be passionate about Tesla bot, but if you work at Tesla and you think Optimus is the coolest thing in the world, but you feel like, well, I don't, I literally don't have anything that I can contribute to that project. You're not going to go stand over there because you're going to go stand over there. You're not going to do anything. Your little phone's going to ding at you. Hey, stop being a drag on company resource. You're going to go do something else. <clears throat> Whereas the people who love it, want to see it succeed, have great ideas and feel like they can make a contribution, showing up to that specific thing every day, putting in the work. And then this little team of people kind of coalesces and gels and starts to make progress. Um, if you have a, so you have that with the bot and then you have that with, you know, every other little thing inside of Tesla and you don't have all this overhead of meetings. Like that is an incredible way to fight ineffective use of company resources and to make incredible progress on really technically difficult problems that are going to bring tremendous value to the world. Yeah. Go Jared. So the one thing that I really liked that he mentioned was that Tesla is kind of just an umbrella of startups and that Tesla has been able to maintain the startup mentality, even given how big of a company they are. Uh, I think they're over a hundred thousand employees now. Uh, I, I didn't have a ton of takeaways from that specific line, but I didn't know if you guys had anything. I've I just been trying to ponder it. You know, what, what are the implications about the business profile of Tesla being such a massive influential startup? on their contributions to the world and just the speed at which they can move um, kind of all that. Did you guys have any thoughts on that? They can do anything. That's honestly, that's, that's my biggest takeaway. I mean, you probably saw this too, Jared, when you worked at Tesla, right? I mean, what, what's, what's Tesla incredibly good at is hiring problem solvers and problem solving is you can use problem solving in any field. All you have to do is just learn it. And then what do problem solvers do that problem solve how to learn something? It's like the, the core skill set that is needed for everything is problem solving. And that's why Tesla's doing all the things that they're doing. I mean, and that Ron Barron conference, he himself said, I can't keep up with all the shit that you do because Tesla's not a car company. <laughs> it has everything. So over time, if you keep bringing in talent that is incredibly talented and they are problem solvers, problem solvers first, and you're incentivized to vertically integrate another thing he said at the meeting was that they're going to get into mining i forgot to say that tesla was going to get into mining uh if really the incentive for everybody is to vertically integrate everything and we have to problem solve our way up that vertical integration at some point if you do enough things you're going to solve everything you know you're going to get your hand into different things over time um so that's 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 the implication for me it's that over the next 10 15 years Tesla is just going to be a conglomerate of manufacturing. And what are they going to manufacture? I don't know. It's going to be a lot of different things. They're going to be manufacturing the thing that's going to manufacture things <laughs> in the Tesla bot. It's wild. It's completely insane. It makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. The, the, key, the takeaway from me from the Andre discussion is that even, even under that culture of um, innovation and 
people flocking to the problems and sort of maximizing uh, the flow of information to solve problems. Why did Andre leave at the end? It was still because he got into a role that was quote unquote managerial. There's still a people thing that's part of Tesla at, at some level. It is super engineering. It is super scientific. But at the same time, it's people working there. So over time, what happens is those leaders um, that have ability as a leader and as a person that's in there dealing with people, they, they're going to flock. They're, they're going to eventually rise to that standpoint. But then it ends up being, okay, well, this is not what I want to do. I want to sort of go to the next thing, right? And the variable that's still there that it seems like Tesla has, has, has figured out in some way is how do we solve for that? for the people, for ensuring that we attract the best possible leaders, for ensuring that the people that go into leadership positions, they stay for as long as humanly possible. I have a theory that, and this this is sort of like a little bit tan, a little bit of tangible, but kind of goes along the same lines, because this is what came up to my head. The one thing that I've noticed is that in those positions where people are leaders and they're, you know, getting to Andre's level, and then saying, you know what, I wanted to do more technical stuff. From my experience, I find that women are very good in those roles, very good in those roles. And what I've seen starting to happen is that uh, women that have a science background or a STEM research background that have technical ability, they, in my opinion, they're automatically going to be better at the people aspect of it because women just are. Women just are. The when I was working at Tesla, our entire leadership group at, at the facility was women. <laughs> it was like myself, Greg, and then we had Nancy, Shayla, Liz, and a bunch of other people. But there was it was mostly women led, and it was it was so interesting for me to watch how like the the different sexes sort of like approach problems, and men are much more like thing focused, and women are much more women are people focused. But like the ultimate killer is a woman with a with a with a technical background, and that's and I think that's why Gwen Shotwell is at SpaceX, and that's why she's been there for so long. And SpaceX is fucking killing it. It's because they have her, and so that that's one of my very weird takeaways that I had from the discussion, the, the under discussion was like, okay, wow. So that's like another reinforcement for me is like. You know, Gwen's been at SpaceX for how long? Like 10, 15 years? And she's rocking it at that point. But she needs to know the technical stuff. You can't be a rocket uh, COO unless you understand the technicals. But she's obviously a great people leader as well. Um, I just want to throw that out there because I don't think it gets talked about enough. Like women and women in technical fields have an advantage. And they should be celebrated for that. And we should put them in those positions, like get them in there. Not because, oh, we need more women and in, in leadership. No, because they're just fucking better at it. On average, they are. So how do we get them in those situations? You know, sorry, that was a little bit of a rant. <laughs> I, I think Tesla, I think Tesla bot should be female, by the way, in my opinion. Of course you would go there. <laughs> I, I was going to say is that one advantage we have though during this time is the same advantage we have on, during COVID. Um, whereas everybody's kind of slowing down. The only the only company that's really hiring engineers right now is Tesla. Mm. Everybody else is kind of like stopped or laying off. And people are going to start to recede in their spending. Their R&D spending is going to decrease just if there's a recession. That's what's going to happen. And Tesla's doing the opposite. 
So where where by everybody and it happened with obviously in the EVs, everybody kind of stopped and struggled, and Tesla expanded their their lead. And I would expect the same same thing to happen over the next couple of years. People will be kind of stuck in the sand, and Tesla will be spending money and advancing you know the technology. And all that can do is advance the lead they have in not only EVs but robotics and and AI and all the other subcategories. Yeah, I love that point because basically engineering talent is on sale right now. There's going to be people like talent that was not available previously that's now going to be available. And then also just the market clearing price for acquiring them is going to be lower. Um, And so that will be a great boon for those that are actually able, you know, have some dry powder on the side and are able to start investing that way right now. Um, I wanted to go back just for a second to the tying the startup inside of Tesla um, comment that you made, Jared. So I think that what he was saying is basically the same thing that I was referencing where it's that self-organizing principle. Like if you give Tesla employees the ability to, oh, here's an idea, you know, Tesla employees can generate ideas about the things that they want to start working on. Um, Now, I think there's a little bit different gravitas when Elon's like, okay, this is a new thing that we're going to start working on. That will probably get a lot more organizational attention with inside of Tesla than something that a person, especially if they're lower on the totem pole, might bring to the table. But that doesn't mean that that can't get traction. But you have an environment where anyone can have a great idea and then other employees in the company can latch onto that idea and contribute their time, energy, and attention to it and start working on it, trying to move it forward. And so that is like, that is the startup is the ability to say, Hey, this is something that we want to work on. Okay. We're going to try and make progress on it. If it contributes to the company, great. We'll keep going forward. And if it doesn't, Okay, and we'll just go back to working on the other things. And so they've created basically it's like um a startup accelerator, like a company that is a startup accelerator. And so, you know, disruption theory is kind of canonical within Silicon Valley. How does it work? And um people like Clayton Christensen will say, Well, hey, it always happens from the periphery. Even, you know, um Tony Siba talks about this. Disruption happens from the outside. It happens from the periphery. It doesn't happen by incumbents. And the reason for that is just a structural thing that big companies need big wins in order to make moves on their balance sheet and their P&L. And the opportunities for startups are so small compared to what a big company needs that they're just not going to pursue those things and they're you know, the big companies are going to listen to their existing customers who have different needs than the people who need the new technology. And so it'll go on an S-curve um, that they didn't start out on it and then they can't catch it as it's ramping. What Tesla's doing by creating the startup culture inside of the company is that they are literally an inside-out disruption factory instead of a lot of current incumbents that are just waiting for an outside in disruption. Um, and so, mm. you know, I, we see this already with the way that Tesla works, that they're disrupting their current products. You know, the Model S disrupts the Roadster. 
the Model 3 disrupts the Model S to a certain extent. And then we'll, you know, the robo taxi is going to disrupt a lot of previous business that they have the ability. And so, you know, as far as a long-term investor is concerned, I love the thought of holding onto a company for 50 years that is constantly on the bleeding edge of disruption in a way that we've never really seen a Silicon Valley company be able to, because, you know, there's that Lindy effect. The half-life of what it took to get you to the scale that you're at is probably the amount of time that it could take you to fall from the peak down to the valley of death. Um, and so if Tesla is able to maintain this culture, especially once Elon departs of inside-out disruption, then they have the possibility to survive over a different type of time scale than companies that get beholden to all the internal politics and the way that existing companies operate. You've got to figure out how do you manage communication over large groups of people so that you can coordinate and now you've got all this process and all this documentation. And um, that's just the natural progression of things. And this is, we'll see, you know, how it turns out, but this is a really interesting counterexample to, you know, maybe there's a way that we can, like you're saying, a, a hack in the way that the world works. Maybe this is one of those hacks in the nature of human um, interactions and cooperation that we haven't really discovered before. Yeah, the one other interesting thing I was thinking about um, with regards to kind of you know, what you're just speaking on as well as um, FSD and going back to Andre's discussion was um, how they were talking about you don't know what problems you're going to face until you run into them exploring FSD and AI, because it's not like anyone has done FSD before. Nobody has completed what a fully self-driving car looks like, um, the functions, the form, everything like that. So they've just been running into that for years now. Um, but it's interesting speaking on disruption, that they're exploring Optimus, you know, more broadly, because it's almost like they're not saying FSD is done, but I think it's well-priced into the new price of a car um, at Tesla. And I think they realize the trajectory that they're on, that not necessarily that it's in the bag, but they've got enough resources devoted to AI in the car that they're kind of shifting their focus into what's next as well. You know, they're, they're speculating on where they can take their learnings from FSD into the next product. And, and maybe that's why like Argo or Ford dumped Argo. Maybe, you know, everybody now knows that FSD is in the bag and it's mm -hmm. not worth uh, spending, you know, throwing bad, good money at bad. And ultimately they believe they might be able to license it and get the technology that way. And maybe that's, it, maybe there's no coincidence. It's a great observation. I think we're kind of touching on so dale in the chat asked, i was just going to bring it up technology impact yeah. the poor and most vulnerable in 10 years and you know it's hard to know for sure but i think the biggest the two biggest potential impacts are fsd and tesla bot and if you understand the concept of elasticity of demand tesla bot will be able to do labor at a cost that is significantly lower like than existing human labor and so we'll be able to create products at low price point like incredible products 
at incredibly low price points in the future that are not possible with business models that exist today. Um, and then, you know, with FSD, if we get to robo taxis, the price per mile to transport people and goods collapses. Um, so both of those two deflationary technologies have the potential to make incredible goods and services accessible to literally the poorest people on earth. Um, now, I think this is going to take a lot longer than 10 years to play out, but that is the type of potential impact that Tesla can have on the world's poor. Threw the words right out of my mouth. Great question. Go ahead, Jared. Yeah, it was also funny. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say it was kind of funny also to hear the contrast between Andre as well as Elon in terms of like timelines. <laughs> you heard Andre, I think he was speaking on Optimus and, you know, I'm not taking it word for word here, but he said something of like, yeah, Optimus, um, you know, general AI is not going to be done for like another 10 plus years or something like that. <laughs> I was just like, Elon would never say anything is 10 plus years away. I feel like. Andre's lucky. He's, he's, uh, he's benefiting from not being on the payroll. <laughs> he can say stuff like that. <laughs> I was going to say, obviously, I think it, it reduces transportation costs, but ultimately, if uh, Optimus is efficient and it raises GDPs for all countries in a dramatic fashion, theoretically, it's going to be tough to have poverty. Theoretically, you're going to have so much wealth that it, you know, not that there's going to not going to be classes, but I would think that the lowest levels will be higher than they are than they would have been before, and the government will be able to implement programs to train, uh, uh, provide living, uh, you know, living uh, amenities, et cetera, uh, just because there will be such a immense uh, you know, amount of profit. The, the thing that I've now been struggling with, and the sort of my, my thinking has evolved over time on this topic, is that as things that we once thought were very pricey and tough to um, pay for. So like, for example, housing, food, you know, shelter, basic needs, like utilities, internet, some form of entertainment right now for, for, for us to be able to do that for everybody, it's going to be multiple thousands of dollars per month, at least if we get to a point where, because the transportation costs and manufacturing costs come down, say an order of magnitude or more. And instead of thousands of dollars a month, it's only hundreds of dollars a month, then that theoretically dramatically increases the pool of people that can now feel like most of us feel today. Let's just use that as an example. However, over time, what I've sort of observed, and this I've, I've observed this of my own mind, and this is maybe I'm projecting my own mind, is once you get to a point where you yourself feel like I have everything I need, your mind still goes to, but what if I'm able to do this? And what if I'm able to do that? And what about that cool new thing, right? And I've tried to train my mind to say, well, dude, like, but, but honestly, look at yourself versus everybody else, especially globally. Like, come on, don't be an idiot. Like, literally, you have everything you need and make it a, a life of passion, you know? But I think it's human nature to, to, and I think that's why we progress so much, to be comfortable with where you are uh, and then view the current as the, well, we've always have this. Why, why can't we go further? Why can't all of us have the next thing? 
And then that's where it gets a little hazy because unless that technology is able to produce those bigger and better things that folks right now view are like incredulous, like it's why would you ever think about everybody having access to that? To now 10 to 20 years in, in advance and people are going to be like, yeah, but what about that thing? But, you know, yeah, everybody's everybody has a house. Everybody has water. Everybody has this. Everybody has Internet, of course. But it's a human right to have a helicopter. I don't freaking know. You know, like what happens then? You know? Yeah. So there's two important metrics. One of them is the baseline. Like, what is the minimum that everyone has? But then the other metric is, OK, and then what's the spread, like the disparity between the person that has the least and the person that has the most? And then what's the distribution of how many people have a lot and then how many people have more towards the minimum. And this has kind of been consistent um, over time that the people with the most relative to the people with the least ends up concentrating in a few hands. Um, and I personally, I think that's a function of life is really hard for a whole number of reasons. And whether it's luck or skill or confluence of like, it takes a, pretty rare combination of both luck and skill and timing and background to achieve high levels of success and wealth, um, whether for positive or negative reasons. Um, and so that's, that is the, the exception, not the rule. I think that's why we end up seeing that disparity. Um, but that will continue to, I think, perpetuate into the future, even as we have a whole lot of stuff there's always going to be someone who has more stuff and even if the stuff that we're looking at changes because okay you know everyone has we'll, we'll use your helicopter example everyone has access to riding on a super safe helicopter um well okay now maybe what i'm looking at as the measuring stick about how well i'm doing relative to other people will change so it anytime you get a lot of people with not, you know, closer to the baseline and then a few people with a lot, that's going to be a time of social upheaval. And I think that is one of the things that we're looking at as we make this transition. And that part is scary. So, um, yeah, you can, you can raise the minimum standard of living to a pretty high level. And if you don't make sure that people feel like society is fair and equitable, you can still be in a world of hurt. So this is the gap. The gap is really the most important thing here. So the the has versus the have nots, if that gap is way too large and you have a sort of like a threshold number of people that are in the have nots, that's when shit gets crazy. As it should. Especially as the gap gets bigger and bigger between the haves and the have nots. Yeah. I prefer Levi's, not the gap myself. But the other part would be that you if if money is you know more prevalent and technology improves life expectancy probably extends also and so people are going to be around longer which adds another component uh, another interesting component and i always you know what i would expect is you'd create a bunch of um, more people that are explorers uh, they get satiated and they'd want to either leave the planet like elon or go explore the ocean or elsewhere. Now, I think it's going to create a whole new class of explorers that will further advance technology. Yeah. Yeah, it's Go interesting. 
there's never when you talk about the gap and stuff like that the first thing i thought of is like well we've never had a time where that gap has been shortening it's always been lengthening over time you know i can't think of a time where it's been shortening um so there are definitely gonna be societal consequences of that but i hope you know the benefits outweigh those consequences yeah um, Mimi makes a great point too. Like stuff doesn't make you happy. That's, I think ultimately that's correct, but most people don't know that because they haven't been able to experience stuff, not making them happy. And I think as a society, we just, we crave stuff, but we, it's not until you get the stuff that you know that it's not, it's not, it's not the stuff, you know, and that was a lesson I learned. It's like, yeah, I want, I want the cars. I want the clothes. I want the jewelry. I want the blah. Then I'm like, well, this shit's a waste of my freaking money. Like I'm, I'm not happy. I got a, like a short, you know, dopamine hit. Oh my God, look at me. I'm so cool. And then I'm like, no, the fuck I'm not. I'm kind of a loser. <laughs> this is not what you're really alive for. You know, think, I think the more people get to experience that, and maybe that's like the age of abundance. Maybe that's like the enlightening. Everybody has access to everything. And then everybody's like, well, it's not the everything. It's the experience. It's the being alive and having conversations and being around family and friends and, and touching grass and, you know, I sound like I'm on mushrooms right now, but like, you know, like all these like, uh, like thinking about the existential nature of our species and what we can do to make it better. And I think that's ultimately what I think makes humans really happy. But you have to get to that point, you know, and and if you're stuck on a nine to five with three kids and you're you know arguing with your wife and you're having a uh, a tough sort of life where you're trying to make it better for yourself and your and your kids, but it's taking years off your life and you're stressed out, you're not going to think about, okay, why, what really makes me happy? You're trying to deal with your everyday, you know? So if we, if we're able to free up the time for people to sit down and actually con contemplate why, why they're alive, I think that equation changes, but that's going to take the most work that's ever taken <laughs> in the history of mankind, I think. Yeah. All right. Uh, any parting thoughts? Maybe we should wrap it up here. What do y'all think? I see everybody on mute. I'll take that as a let's go. All right. Any uh, any predictions for college football? That's how we ended it last time. I know we got a, a couple of us have to go soon. So uh, I know we got Georgia, Tennessee. We got uh, who are, who's Oregon playing this weekend? Are they? Do they have a bye? I forget. I should probably take that hat down. I I don't even know. <laughs> Fairweather fan. I think yeah, they're I playing. Now, I'm a longtime fan. I just haven't been into college football recently. Colorado. Um, okay, yeah. Think, so Oregon. Yeah, I think Oregon's playing Colorado. little sisters of the four. Yeah. <laughs> One and seven. Yeah. You better I'm from Colorado, and Oregon is definitely going to destroy Colorado. That, yeah. UCLA is playing Arizona State. Okay. So UCLA is going to win. Is Arizona State good this year? No. Okay. So you guys should, should win, right? UCLA, yeah. number 12 team. Oh, yeah, you guys should. UCLA's favorite by 11. Uh, Jared, you're a high state guy, so I'm just going to ignore you. Um, <laughs> let's see. I'm just kidding. Who's a high state playing this weekend? Northwestern? Yeah, that's like a OSU's favorite 38. Georgia, Tennessee, in the chat, for those that follow college football, what do you all think? Who wins it? This one's intriguing for me because UGA's favorite eight and a half. I don't think so, man. I think Tennessee has a chance to win this one. What do you guys think? It's at Georgia, though, right? It is at Georgia, yeah. Yeah, so I like Georgia. Okay. Simple enough. What about you, Hans? Do you have a Do you have a take on this? Um, I, the SEC is fun, and so I think Georgia could totally get taken out at home by Tennessee. 
Okay. Jared, do you have a take on Georgia, Tennessee? I don't really have a take. Go Buckeyes. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. What a bastard. Uh, I think, so I don't know who Georgia has played this year. That's actually legitimately a good team. If I look at their schedule, they or I'm in Oregon, but that was the first uh, game of the uh, of the season. You usually don't take a lot away from that. Samford, South Carolina, Kent State, Missouri, Auburn, Vanderbilt, Florida. These aren't uh, like the greatest teams, you know. They, of course, they've taken care of business, but like Kent State, they struggled. They almost lost to Missouri, and Missouri is not very good. And now they got freaking Tennessee that's riding a gigantic wave going into their house. One of my best friends is a huge Georgia fan, and I hope he's watching this. I'm taking Tennessee. I'm taking Tennessee. I think I think they win by I think they win by field goal. You heard it here first. Georgia goes down. Tennessee proves that they're number one. And I hope Ohio State loses to Northwestern. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm still sour about last week. Go ahead. Do you want to put some money on it, Farzad? Hell no. To it. I'm trying to buy more Tesla stock. <laughs> put some Tesla shares on the line. No, no, no. I'm trying to. I'm trying to amass more. I'm not confident about that pick. I think Georgia's going to beat beat them up. Let's let's uh, play for a hundred shares of Tesla. All right. Got it. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Hell no. Those are mine. All right. Thank you all very much. That was an awesome discussion. Thank you all, all the panel, for being so open. And uh, I thought that was a we touched so many different subjects. And for me, it was incredibly rewarding to have the chance to sit down with you all to, to discuss this live. So thank you guys very, very much. Uh, thank you, everybody in the chat for following along. Thank you so much for supporting. Thank you for liking. Thank you for subscribing. And thank you for supporting the channel. Any parting words from the from the panel before we head off? Oh. It's an honor to be here with you, gentlemen. Everybody have a good weekend and be well. Thank you. All right. Go Buckeyes. This guy and his Buckeyes. All right, everybody. See ya. See you next week. Actually, see you at 3.30 Central. I'm going to be live with uh, James Dalma, Scott, and um, and uh, Dr. Nodal. So I'm excited for, for that one in about two hours. I hope my brain can keep you up. See you guys later. Bye-bye. And broadcast. <laughs>